Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's the holiday week here on IF, and we are wrapping the year up with an all-host roundtable. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I've got Shannon Jones, Nick Seipel, Jason Moser, and Emily Flippin with me in the studio. What is going on, people? Hey, hey. hey. What's up? <laughs> so, we looked back the past decade in our first part of the discussion. We're going to be looking back at uh, 2019 a little bit in this discussion. Before we get into that, though, I want to know what is on the holiday wish lists for people. We might have some people that are currently driving to their relative's house to <laughs> celebrate the holidays, might need to stop somewhere and get a gift. Let's give them a couple ideas. Nick, what's on your list? Oh, man, a bucket of money is always on the list. Um, <laughs> uh, let's see. I mean, I always like for a stocking stuffer, like a good multi tool, like a good pocket knife what? or like yeah, that's, you one know, of those things. That's a great gift. You get good use out of it. Like, you know, it's one of those things. It's the right price, it's like 20 bucks. And uh, I think anybody can get a good use out of How something. How old like are that. you, Nick? <laughs> hey, I appreciate a good, useful gift. Um, Nick, yeah. I'm going to come to your defense here. I asked for a Leatherman for Christmas oh. last year. Boom. I asked for one this year. Bam. <laughs> there it is. Boom. Did you get the Leatherman that you asked for? I did. Nice. Because my mom and I have a tradition of being <laughs> very specific for a couple gifts. We're just like, you know, we're at the point where we can both buy the things that we want to buy. Hey, listen, man. I tell my kids that I'm like, yeah. 40 years old. I, mean, <laughs> I, I can get whatever I want at this yeah. point. Like It just kind of all loses meaning. you got to start thinking a little bit uh, outside the box. Yeah, so what's outside the box for you this year? Oh, a big master bathroom renovation. <laughs> <laughs> That's what my wife and I gave ourselves. Um, thank God for a home equity line of credit, right? Uh, that is that is the big Christmas gift for this year and many, many, many years to come. The gift that keeps and, on giving. Well, and that's the idea is we moved into a you know a new house a couple of years ago and we had this vision of what we thought the bathroom could look like and we decided to bite the bullet this year and we're almost there. Just, you know, maybe another week and it'll be done and then we'll be able to enjoy that for the rest of our time in the home. Maybe not something that people could pick up on the way to their no, relatives. Probably not. But I do have an idea there and this kind of goes <laughs> back to the business world, and I don't know if you guys heard, AC Moore, the arts and crafts store, is going out of business. Um, and that's a local provider here. I don't know if it's really big uh, nationwide, but I mean, it's it's a really neat arts and crafts store. And as you all probably know, I like to paint watercolors. If, if you have any art, artistic inclination, man, go, out, go out and buy some art supplies. And if you don't, or you know someone who doesn't, and you want to give them the gift of, of you know, a new hobby or an interest, get them something like that. And you never know unless you try. And they can typically be pretty affordable gifts. And, uh, you know, worst case, they're not interested. Best case, they get, they get latched on to a, a new lifetime hobby. And this is coming from the best water, watercolorist at The Motley Fool. Well, I, I don't know that I would say that. I definitely <laughs> wouldn't say that. He's just been to a lot of paint and sip classes. <laughs> <laughs> That's where all of them come from. The pictures start to get better the longer the night goes on <laughs> at those paint and sips. Uh, Shannon, what's on the wish list for you this year? All right, so I'm very practical this year, and I hope my husband is listening to this because I have not told him this. So I'm revealing it to all of the listeners at the same time. But I want a Waterpik Sonic Fusion flossing toothbrush for Christmas. Now, this is a multi-pronged tool. It's not a pocket knife. But what it is <laughs> is a toothbrush, and it also flosses with water. And so, for me, as I'm always looking to cut down on healthcare costs, of course, <laughs> this is a way to basically get the same type of cleaning that you get at a dentist, but on your own. So, for me, it's... Pretty expensive, especially for a toothbrush. But I'm like, I can I can use this for years, and it's going to cut down on me having to get my teeth cleaned every six months. That's not unlike Jason's bathroom renovation. 
you're, it's you're, the you're, gift that keeps on giving. It keeps on giving. And That's hey, so listen, true. As, as I, it's I'm, an investment. It's I'm, not I'm, a cost. I am all for good oral health. I mean, I just <laughs> went to the dentist last week, and I don't like going, but I tell you, I like when I leave that clean feeling. Yes, anything that keeps you out of the dentist's office is good. <laughs> Emily, like Nick, I'm going to expect something wildly practical from you. <laughs> I, I, you know what? I had something practical, and I'm just sitting here thinking, gosh, what happened to the holidays that people are giving multi-tools and water picks? I mean, this is depressing. <laughs> You know, mine was going to be, I, I don't think I'd like something like this. Mine was going to be a weighted blanket. Those things are all the yes. rage right now. Yep. And people apparently love them. It sounds horrible to me. But you know what I'm going to say? If you have a kid, get them a Switch, a Nintendo Switch. If you haven't made that leap, it's a good gaming platform. The 2020 lineup in terms of games for the Switch is great, especially if you have kids. So I'd say make the leap there. Emily, I think you're spying on my household right now. <laughs> <laughs> I got one for the daughter for Christmas this year, and I just bought myself a weighted blanket, Whoa. a 20-pounder, and let me tell you, I love it. Yeah. What does it do? <laughs> it makes you feel secure and safe. So and you it's go to kind of like I guess it's kind of like when you have a baby and you got to wrap that thing up like a burrito. It's like a so you keep yeah, like yeah. you you learn how to swaddle. And I mean, like they give you a class in like wrapping a Chipotle yeah. burrito. And if you can, the goal is to wrap this kid as tightly as you possibly can. <laughs> I guess that's science. what that is, right? <laughs> If you don't have kids in your life, the, the, the <laughs> gift that I would recommend, my, my mom will generally ask you, like, what are you interested in? Um, and I like getting restaurant gift cards for my local area. I think it's a nice, easy gift. Uh, you don't have to worry about someone, you know, getting something and never using it because it doesn't take up space. You know, it's it's a, an excuse to go out, and I think it's a nice little way to kind of explore, uh, you know, your area if you're in a city or an area with a lot of restaurants. Uh, I'll add though that there is one other thing on my wish list, and that is ratings and reviews from uh, our loyal listeners. And you know what? That one doesn't cost anything. I thought you were going to say bed sheets this year, <laughs> <laughs> Dylan. Didn't we have this conversation last year? I don't use a sheet. <laughs> I, I, have, I, I, have, I have a fitted sheet and a comforter. Yeah, me well, too. Well, hey, okay. Yeah. We this the same. We got that same thing going on. Who home. likes extra blankets? Wow. So, so we my have, weighted blanket. We have a majority over here, <laughs> yeah, Shannon. There you go. But don't let that detract from you know giving us ratings and reviews. We do love getting those, um, and it helps us out tremendously as we try to rise in the ranks and become one of the best business podcasts out there. Yes, sir. All right. So in this one, we are looking back at the year that was. We covered the decade that was in our last one. Um, why don't we just start things off with Nick here? What, what was like kind of the major story for you in 2019? Well, so I would say for my sector, for the energy industrials, it has to be the Boeing 737 MAX. Uh, this is a story, you know, I guess it was last October. We had the first plane crash uh, and, you know, it was a tragic sort of thing. But then we had a second crash come through in March and it's really taken over uh, the, the company's story. I mean, Ever since then, at first they weren't going to halt production. We were going to keep on uh, producing planes, store them, and you know we would have this plane up back up and running in no time. I think we just heard this week that they are, are contemplating fully stopping production uh, on, on the 737 Max when that's the vast majority of, of their backlog. And you have you know a, a market like you know commercial air travel that is just so massive uh, on a global basis. I think when you have uh, the most important platform from one of the most important companies and one of the most important uh, kind of sectors globally, I think it's, it's been a massive story. Yeah, it's been hard to escape that one this year. Uh, Shannon, what's, what's going on in the healthcare space? Yeah, so I think if 2018 was the year of marijuana, 
2019 is the year of CBD, right? <laughs> um, it's really been just true CBD mania this year, um, and a lot of hype coming off of the signing of the Farm Bill last year, which basically legalized hemp on the federal level. But you've seen CBD exploding onto store shelves everywhere. It's your mommy and pop shops, it's your dispensaries, it's your grocery stores, it's even pet stores now. Um, but it's literally everywhere. I think 7-Eleven even now has CBD products. But um, I think one of the more interesting things for me, at least uh, following the healthcare space, is of course just the potential of CBD as a therapeutic agent. Um, it's one of a little over 100 different components within the plant. So we know very little about that one, and we know even less about the 99 plus others. So um, I think this year is really about now kind of taking the handcuffs off of the CBD space. Now we can actually get into the research, see what this particular compound is about, also how they interact with each other, something called the entourage effect. And so I think there's been a lot of hype coming into this year for CBD, and I think you've started to see a lot of that begin to wane toward the end of the year, but I still think there's a lot of promise, and you're seeing a lot of your big pharma players now really starting to figure out, hey, is there really something to CBD potentially boosting the impacts of one drug if we combine it? And so, it's been an interesting year in the marijuana space, but even more so for CBD. So, if 2019 was the year of CBD, will 2020 and the years that follow be the years where we get a better sense of exactly what's going on with CBD and how it impacts us? I think that will be the start. Um, I still think we're many years out from really, truly understanding what CBD can do, and also, too, just trying to, to get through all the players in the space. It seems like everybody and their mom and dad has some sort of CBD product on the market, um, but they're all not the same. And I think safety and quality is what we'll really start to see become a bigger factor in 2020 um, and really start to, to separate the wheat from the chafe. So I know that you're generally going to be hosting the CG show, Emily, but <laughs> but I have to transition to you off of weed because you and Shannon work together so closely on so much of that stuff. Uh, is your 2019 uh, the kind of immediate thing you think of also pot related or is it a different space? Well, when you spend the last year analyzing the cannabis industry, <laughs> he does tend to do that. And for, the, for what it's worth, I think cannabis is kind of the ultimate consumer product. And in fact, most cannabis companies are positioning themselves as consumer packaged goods companies. So there's a medical aspect to cannabis for sure, like Shannon mentioned with CBD especially, but you also have, you know, Epidiolex, which is the first FDA approved drug containing CBD used for treating rare forms of epilepsy. So there's lots of medicinal purposes, but there's also lots of consumer recreational purposes there as well. So it's been a bad year for that side of the business, as we've seen oversupply in Canada, um, numerous regulations making it really hard to access the cannabis market here in the U.S. I do think that 2020 is going to continue to be a little bit rough, but there's going to be a silver lining in Canada. We have derivatives legalization, so uh, cannabis 2.0, as they put it, which will allow people in that market to gain access to you know food and beverages containing cannabis, which opens up an entire new market for consumers in Canada, at least. What we've seen with marijuana over the last year and a half, to me, isn't really all that different than what we saw with blockchain over maybe the last three years, where people got really excited about something. Everyone was talking about how they were going to use it and integrate it into their products or their services to make their business more efficient. All of that hype led to expectations that were maybe a little out of step with what was capable or you know what reality really looked like. And now we're kind of settling into, okay, here are the true winners in some sense. I mean, the crypto side of things, let's just kind of put that on the <laughs> shelf for now and talk about the excitement of blockchain itself. Um, but I think that it's only natural for us to go through some of those cycles with these hype industries. Yeah. And I think you have to remember, 
these are companies being built as the infrastructure is also being built. So we've seen a lot of just, to be honest, dumb mistakes that a lot of these companies have had as you have executives that are inexperienced and are trying to build a multi-billion dollar company and you don't even have the infrastructure from a regulatory perspective yeah. in place, in some cases even legally. So I think you know a lot of the hype we saw, and I expected, and Emily and I talked about this earlier last year, like things are going to get rough at the end of the year, and that's exactly what we're seeing. Um, but I also think it creates a lot of opportunity, too, because there are some really well-run companies that are out there. We'll continue to see that now as derivatives are coming online, and these are higher-margin products as well. So I think there's a lot to look forward to heading into yeah. 2020. Just a follow-up follow up question there. You know, Talking about it being the year of CBD, and I guess what's made that really possible is the Farm Bill lifted some regulatory restrictions on that area um, of the business. To what extent would you say that the business is still kind of being driven by these regulatory changes? And to what extent is are these businesses now kind of free from regulation and able to kind of drive the bus themselves? Yeah, I think it's really still the lack of regulations, especially on the CBD front. We've seen like the FDA right now. Um, they've tried to put out some guidance even recently to try to regulate, okay, what is really a prescription CBD product versus something that's really a dietary supplement? The problem is it's still gray and it's still unclear. So right now, they're still very much at the mercy of whatever the FDA or regulators want to do. I do think, though, on a state level, um, states like Illinois that are creating a solid infrastructure, and you know exactly how you're operating in the space. Um, I think companies set up in those specific states do really well. But again, they're still at the mercy of not just on the state level, but also on the federal level, too. And to be clear, the Farm Bill hasn't even fully gone into effect yet. So in November of 2020 is when states are going to have to put in their own regulations as they apply to CBD. And the FDA has made it very clear, and they requested earlier this year to get information about re research about CBD, and they didn't get it. And instead, what they got was really shoddily done research relating to rats. And that's what they've been basing their guidance off of. I mean, human guidance off of these really shoddy research studies, because, you know, Cannabis is still a Schedule One narcotic under the you know following the government's uh, rules there, and so the idea of having access to research grade cannabis is hard within itself. It's a really really hard process. I think 2020 is going to continue to see that process extended as states now have to make their own regulations as they apply to CBD. One of the best social recommendations that I've gotten from Shannon Jones was the, the uh, must-follow account. Is it In Mice? Just says In Mice. <laughs> Absolutely a must-follow. And the, the idea there is there is research, and we see the headline, and it's, you know, this reduces rate of this by this amount, and the asterisk that almost always needs to be there is in mice. And it's never there. And so this Twitter <laughs> account literally compiles all of those ridiculous headlines, something that's said it's going to cure cancer. No, that's just in mice. <laughs> and that is not applicable to actual human models. So yes, I highly recommend that Twitter account as a, a huge follow. Jason, when we were doing our 10-year look back in the last episode, you talked about how one of the major themes that you were focused on was how fees slowly evaporated. Is that the story for 2019 for you? Because we saw a lot of that happening. Well, I mean, it certainly could be, but <laughs> the risk of being uh, redundant, I'm going to go in a little bit of a different direction because I think one one story we've talked a lot about this year that we, I, honestly, I think we probably thought this was going to be wrapped up by this point. It was this China trade deal, and I mean, it is just every week something else, and it's I mean, we get requests to talk about this, and I mean, it's been interesting to follow just from the perspective of the world continues to get smaller thanks to technology, right? We're all more connected. It's easier to just get halfway around the world, so to speak, um, than ever before because you just click a button and you're there at this point. Um, 
there are a lot of political forces at play, I think, trying to drag this out and make it a 2020 issue, which is why we haven't seen real resolution to it yet. But I think it's interesting to look at all of the companies, the different types of companies that are affected by it. We see tech companies, for example. And let's look at Apple just as, as an easy example of a, a tech company that should um, be affected by this in a big way. But Tim Cook, I think, saw around that corner a little bit. Um, I'm sure that he's probably not on the same page with the politics of the current White House administration, but he's been very diplomatic about his relationship with them, and and consequently, you know, Apple's gotten some some freebies from the from the White House. They're not ne- they're not necessarily as as tied to these to these tariffs that that could go into effect at any given point in time. Um, so Apple, I, I think, is is been a, a uh, you know they've they've seen some good fortune from that. The companies that. Go into making these devices that Apple makes. The top performer in our AR portfolio this year is not Apple. It's not Microsoft. It's not Alphabet. It's Lumentum. And I don't know how many people actually out there know about Lumentum or what it does. It's just a little small cap chip maker that makes this vertical cavity surface emitting laser technology that enables 3D sensing, which is imperative for this mixed reality future that we're headed towards. And because Apple is kind of getting freebies, then you see these component companies getting a little bit of a pass as well. And so while it's not necessarily been a straight line up, Lamentum's had a pretty darn good year because they've kind of been in that same boat as Apple. You flip that coin over, you look at a company like Wayfair that, I mean, it's kind of a tech company, but it's a retail a retail company at the end of the day. Uh, their earnings report just a couple of weeks ago, the stock fell like 20% on earnings. And, and, and if you look at the metrics of the business, it was a great quarter. But there was a passage in the call, and I want to read this to you. It said, uh, it was from the CFO, Michael Fleischer. He said, and I quote, since the beginning of the year, more than 90% of our suppliers who are subject to China tariffs have raised wholesale prices, which have resulted in higher retail prices. As retail prices on the site fluctuate, we observe that our customers' consideration cycle gets disrupted and is is effectively lengthened. And so, his point was that all of this uncertainty is leading to an uncertain consumer, and we're not making those purchases we might have been ready to make even just a month ago or a year ago. And so you're seeing these headlines playing out on a number of different companies a number of different ways. And I just I have to believe that these management teams are beside themselves trying to figure out how to diversify themselves away from like a China-based supply chain. But it's a lot easier said than done, right? I mean, like like with with Boeing, you can't just stop producing planes. I mean, you got you got to kind of unwind your situation there. And a lot of these retailers uh, seem to be faced with that same dilemma right now. Yeah, we talk about it a lot when there's something scary going on in the big macro picture. The markets generally don't like uncertainty. Mm. Management teams generally don't like uncertainty. And for better or worse, I think probably worse, there's been a lot of uncertainty uh, with people making a lot of those supply chain decisions and a lot of those procurement decisions, uh, particularly for those big multinationals, because it's just been hard to anticipate where costs are going to go. Yep. I mean, you look at a company like like iRobot, you know, that makes the Roomba vacuums. You know, it's a company that already was facing a lot of uh, issues when it comes to competitors coming on the lower end of the market, taking some margin away from them, and then you've layered over this China trade war, which has required them to remake their entire uh, entire supply chain, move some of that out of China. Um, in addition to, you know, they've got ongoing issues uh, with with uh, IP litigation and those sorts of things, and it, you know, it makes what is a complicated problem for a lot of businesses fixing their supply chain even more so uh, when you layer on all these other issues on top. So, Jason, you just said Wayfair is kind of a tech company. Yeah. And I think my theme of the year is kind of tech companies. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm 
delighted that I get to bring up uh, the end of this discussion without WeWork having been mentioned yet. <laughs> and and I think that it was really hard to escape that story for the last couple months. And there are a lot of elements that I think it speaks to. I think we fell into this cult of CEO worship and founder worship over the last 10 or 15 years. And it's clear that a lot of that praise and a lot of that love wasn't necessarily deserved. Um, and you know, there are investors in the private markets that have different ideas of what success looks like than investors in the public markets. Um, we've seen a lot of businesses thrive on venture capital money for a really long time. And um, you know, I think we've seen a lot of companies pitching themselves as tech companies, but maybe not really having the nice scalable elements of a true tech business. And unfortunately for WeWork, they were the one who everyone kind of woke up to all of these different things that were going on and said, you know, this doesn't seem quite right. Um, and Adam Newman was the one who kind of became the face of a lot of trends that I think have been bubbling up for quite some time. Yeah, I think people talk about sometimes when something becomes common knowledge. So I think the issue that you point out of these kind of not a tech company, long term unprofitable businesses, CEOs, uh, that maybe have some conflicts with shareholders to too large of, a, of, a constant, of an extent uh, for us to be happy with that. And I think the WeWork IPO really made a lot of those concerns that had been simmering for a long time common knowledge and has really changed the way we view. I mean, we've seen so many IPOs delayed now. Um, you know, you layer that in with earlier in the year, Uber, Lyft, those companies that had a lot of uh, skepticism around them, and then the, the, the WeWork story kind of hammers home some of those concerns. And you know what think, else? Uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think there is now healthy skepticism in the market, and I kind of welcome what has happened with WeWork, granted, not for the people that are involved, but really just to bring a sense of normalcy back to the market. I mean, the IPO market is pretty cyclical. We see companies go public that obviously should not go public, but also at the same time, though, um, I think this kind of growth at any cost mentality is starting to get some real scrutiny. And personally, for me as an investor, I see this as an opportunity. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you totally. I think I'm Byproduct of that is this enthusiasm to dig into the S ones now, right? I mean, it, it seems like people are more excited to dig into an S one, and they're like nerds, but it's actually pretty fun because you learn so much about a business just by reading that one document. Um, and, and I'm sure this is probably just because we're in a little bit of that Twitter echo chamber where everybody's excited to read that stuff. But it just does seem like the enthusiasm there now more than ever to really learn about these businesses and come up with a you know an, an educated opinion that that. Uh, you feel like you can stand behind because you've done a little bit of digging into it. Yeah, that is another thing that blows my mind about this story when you talk about the S1, how quickly that S1 went from dropping to just being absolutely eviscerated mm -hmm. by everybody on Twitter. And it became immediately, like I said, common knowledge. Everyone knew. Can you believe they spent whatever $5 million to buy the IP for the Wii company? Um, these tiny little footnotes were common knowledge instantly um, as soon as that S1 dropped, which is is... is Unprecedented. It's almost like albums dropping now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when the S1 drops, everybody flies to Twitter to talk about it. And I mean, just the speed of just sharing that information and really getting a very quick pulse on what investors are thinking. I mean, Twitter, thankfully, has opened that up. I think a big part of the reason why that's happened is because so many of these names have been private for so long yeah. and been consumer-facing. And so, I mean, I remember when Uber, Lyft, Spotify, Snap went public, I had tons of friends that were asking me, like, oh, are you buying stock? You know, yeah. like, you know, are, are you going to buy in on the IPO? And so um, I'm relieved a little bit that the scrutiny of the financial media 
halted the brakes on WeWork because I think it prevented a lot of early investors from making a really big mistake and getting bitten in one of their early investing decisions. Um, and, and it's unfortunate that so many people also, you know, had their shares get kneecapped, and it's created a lot of problems and layoffs for that yeah. company. But those were probably going to come one way or the other. And I think too, it makes you step back and and really examine. Okay, why is this company going public? Are they going public because they actually need the cash, or is that really inconsequential? Um, are they just looking for some liquidity? Like I think. Right now, it's more so than okay. This is an event that is happening in their history, and it's really now taking that next level. Okay, but why are they going public? And yeah. I think that's the type of scrutiny that I like to see come back into the markets, and I think will make for just a healthier investing environment overall. Yeah, and and not to you know totally shun IPOs. There have been some really great companies that have gone public in 2019 and 2018, and put up some monster results in the process. I think it's just unfortunate that some of the big names haven't performed particularly well because of a lot of stuff we've talked about already. Um, all right, we are going to talk about trends of the last 10 years, whether they are sticking around or going away. Before that discussion, though, we've got another listener stock pitch, read by Jason Moser. All right, and this one's from Mike. Mike says, the last stock I bought, which was influenced by your recent chat on REITs, so there you go, Matt Frankel, he's our resident REIT expert, was Global Self Storage, ticker SELF. It's a microcap, and microcap indeed. It's about a $33 million market cap. So it's a tiny company, but focused on self storage units. They are growing through acquisition, strong PPO, and overall growth potential. The self storage unit is also potentially recession proof and poised for good dividend growth, but I could consider it a good income plus growth play. All right, Mike. Well, be careful with those microcaps. They can be a little bit. Uh, they can be a little bit tough sometimes, especially uh, sub one hundred million dollar market cap. But I, I don't disagree with you on the uh, the storage units. That's that's a big market that just seems to be quite resilient. Yeah, that's that's a killer tailwind. I think over the next five to ten years, um, I've read so many articles about as the baby boom generation is retiring and starting to downsize, that a lot of the stuff that was in the home where they raised their children and maybe were originally set up is finding its way into storage units. Um, and, and I have to think that's going to continue. People love stuff. Um, Quit hoarding! <laughs> Quit hoarding! Throw stuff away, people! Come on! Don't don't kneecap his pitch. Nah, just, <laughs> just for, the, for, the, for the betterment of society, throw some stuff away. All right. So, uh, for the back half of this discussion, we're going to talk about trends of the last ten years and whether they are sticking around or going away. Um, I'm going to kick this one off because I haven't gotten to go first yet. Uh, for me, I think athleisure is here to stay. I, I think that this is a trend that people are excited about, if for no other reason. It's finally socially acceptable to be comfortable. You know, if you're walking around an airport, you see people in athleisure left and right. And I think the airport is kind of a good uh, little proxy for how people tend to dress, how people tend to kind of carry themselves. And I see it everywhere when I fly. I don't think it's going away. I think wellness is going to become an increasingly large part of people's lifestyles. And I think aspirational wellness, which is kind of what athleisure is, uh, is probably going to stick around too. Makes you look like you're at least trying, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, this would be athleisure, wouldn't it? My yep. little Under Armour quarter zip. Yeah, I bet I'm not working out. No. Every once Here's in a while, on the I... treadmill, little Pilates <laughs> here and there, you know. But that's about it. Here's what I will say about athleisure. I think in the U.S., I agree with you. But the moment you go to a foreign com- country and you're wearing athleisure, man, do you stand out like a sore <laughs> thumb? They're like, 
wow, did you just roll out of bed? Did you just come back from it? What are you doing? Walking? Why are you eating lunch and leggings? It's it's weird outside of the U.S., but I couldn't agree more. I mean, I'm doing this podcast in leggings right now. So. <laughs> I, I, I'm just amazed that it's called athleisure because... When I was in college, it was just going to class, right? You just put on some comfortable clothes and you went to class. So to give it a name is just kind of funny to me. But at the same time, though, I just read an article last week where um, women were talking about, basically, is it appropriate to wear leggings into the workplace? And I was shocked at how many women said no. Because for me, I'm all about a good pair of leggings. It's comfortable. But there's still like some stigma that we've got to get past to really make it truly like comfortable. I don't know that everybody is there yet, but it's just really fascinating to watch this space. That might be one of the situations where the fool office is not necessarily representative <laughs> of the spoiled. general corporate yeah. environment in the United States. Yeah, I mean, one thing I do think about here with athleisure, uh, I think it's it's been a big trend recently. Everybody talks about the, the investment banker Patagonia uh, fleece vest, and it's kind of infiltrating work to a certain extent. So a thing I think about from the athleisure point of view is as it's becoming more acceptable to wear things like jeans and fleece vests and, and those sorts of things in the workplace, uh, you, th- you think the athleisure trend is going to continue. Where do you think formal wear goes? Suits, ties, dresses? Is that going? Is that going Hopefully down and out? Right athletes are taking the, the spot. <laughs> I mean, even in your most sacred places, like places of worship, churches now are becoming more and more casual. So that, I think that's a great question, Nick. I don't know where it goes. I think the suit is always going to have a place. Hmm. Uh, I mean, I think I think for things like weddings, uh, bar mitzvahs, like you know, like those types of things, I think they're going to exist. Emily's shaking her head. <laughs> well, yeah. the reason why I'm saying that is because I I was just invited to a wedding next year, and I'm going through that process of being like, oh gosh, you know, what do I? The last wedding I went to said, you know what, anything goes. You know, wear something nice, wear some, wear jeans if you're comfortable in that. It works. This wedding is like black tie wedding, as in, I I don't know guys' fashion, but I'm having to learn for this wedding. Something like, you literally have to put on a white shirt with a black vest underneath with a tuxedo jacket, which apparently is not the same thing as a suit jacket, (laughs) over it with a black, I mean, this is ridiculous. To me, there's a difference between wearing leggings and looking semi-presentable. In my opinion, weddings and and funerals and church, those things are going the way of of semi-presentable. I would love to see an athleisure wedding. Yeah. I, I, hey, I, Dylan, that's your wedding right there. I'm calling I don't, it. I'm calling I don't, it. I don't think Jess Where's would go Jess? for that. Um, and I don't think she's going to listen to this episode. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Nick, what do you think is sticking around over the next 10 years? Well, the one that I picked with athle- was athleisure. So, uh, <laughs> we won't, we won't uh, we'll go with kind of a little. Is it really that big? Yeah. Well, it's like that both of you talked about The this. reality is that Nick and I have desks right next to each yeah. other, and we talk to each other for a good portion of the day. Yeah. Uh, so, the, my backup trend is the direct-to-consumer trend. So, I think we've cha- mm. we've seen that change really uh, in a significant way. I remember when I was growing up, um, I mean, one area you think about is the pushing more into private label. So the idea that when I was growing up, hey, if you bought the store brand, it was looked down upon more so today. I mean, you know, we're, we're fine with buying private label. But then when you look at, at, at other brands like uh, Warby Parker, uh, one that p- folks talk about a lot, or Casper, it's just becoming easier than ever with YouTube, social media, to really stand up a brand from zero and to really, really build it up. I, the other one that, that folks think about a lot is uh, Kylie Jenner. Uh, you know, you build a billion-dollar company up from from almost nothing using using social media marketing. I think that trend uh, is really going to continue, and we're seeing that grow uh, even more so. I think earlier this year, when Nike pulled their products off of Amazon, choosing to go through their own uh, uh, you know shop uh, platform, 
Uh, so I think direct-to-consumer is, is really going to continue to grow over time. Uh, social media has changed the game when it comes to the ability to market and stand up a brand uh, from zero. So uh, I think that's, uh, that's going to continue. <laughs> Sorry, Shannon. I thought you, you were looking at the mic like you were going to hop in. So I, I was, but he, did, he said it so eloquently. There was nothing for me else, else for me to add to that. So there kudos to you, Nick. Cool. Um, what do you think sticking around, Shannon? So um, on the healthcare front, I think what's sticking around is the rise in the use of personalized medicine, specifically precision medicine. So um, the Human Genome Project, which is basically mapping out the human genetic code was completed in 2003. It was about a 13-year undertaking, but that has really unlocked a lot of valuable information that a lot of companies, especially in the cancer front, are using to their advantage. So, there are basically companies now that can identify, you know, based on your genetic makeup, this is not only the best treatment, but this is the right time to give you this treatment. And even before that, we can actually tell you what you're going to be diagnosed with. And so I think with healthcare, um, personalized medicine, precision medicine, getting the right treatment to the right patient at the right time is only going to continue. Um, looking back 10 years ago, for a lot of these big biopharma companies, it was always about the big indication. It was always about you know the blockbuster cardiovascular space, heart medications, the one-size-fits-all. That is now changing. Now you're seeing them do studies in like patient populations of like maybe a thousand. And now you see the FDA incentivizing a lot of these companies to go after these rare unmet need areas. And so not only can they command a higher price tag, but you can actually now target and get to the root of the disease rather than just treating the symptoms. So I think that's a trend that is here and will only continue to get better. It seems like personalized medicine isn't just going to be limited to treatment. It's also going to be limited. Uh, it's also going to extend to the relationships that people have with their physicians. I mean, I know Teladoc is a stock that a lot of folks have on their radar or own in their brokerage account. It's a full favorite. And um, that one's kind of getting a little bit personalized, but in a different way. It's a little bit more on the patient's terms with how they experience their doctor yeah, visit. Yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly right. And I know, Jason, you have a lot of thoughts on Teladoc, but I think um, <laughs> how, how we're interacting with healthcare companies, um, being in control, and also, too, just being able to take you know, a medical record and actually share that with multiple providers and not have to fill out that darn patient form every time you go to the doctors. Like, that's huge. And so I think across this entire space, I mean, you're just seeing the face, the delivery of healthcare transform. Was it hard for you to bite your tongue while we were talking about Teladoc, Jason? I've learned to just <laughs> stay quiet. I think I've said all I have to say. I've made my case. Uh, what do you think will be here 10 years from now? Uh, so, I mean, I guess I probably should be talking something financial related here, but you it's, don't have it's to. totally, totally the opposite direction here. <laughs> um, you know, it, for me, really, I think when I, I look at augmented reality, virtual reality, mixed reality, I think we are now at the very forefront of where this stuff is getting ready to start taking off in meaningful ways. And I think one of the interesting things about this technology is for so long, we were all waiting for it to affect us on the consumer side. You saw the movie that showed how you could be in this different world or how it could change your life because of this different perspective and, and whatnot. And, and the consumer implications just had not materialized as quickly. But when you look in into other verticals, such as healthcare, engineering, um, I mean, entertainment to a degree, sure, uh, you're seeing where augmented reality and virtual reality and mixed reality are really starting to play a big role. And companies like Microsoft and Apple and, and Alphabet, the, the usual suspects making big investments. Um, we, saw app, we saw a lot more clarity this year on Apple and their headset aspirations. Um, you've got other 
smaller private companies like Magic Leap building um, their solutions as well. So, I mean, it, it's it's a market where in 2017, augmented reality alone was valued at about four billion dollars, and it's projected to to reach sixty billion by 2023. And so, we're seeing a lot of different uh, applications as far as this technology goes beyond just the consumer and into the workforce and manufacturing and engineering and stuff like that. Um, it's just a really exciting time to be alive, and, and you're seeing a lot of these companies. They've been making a lot of these big investments for a long time. It didn't just happen overnight, but now we're starting to see a little bit of the the fruit from these investments, and it's it's uh, pretty cool stuff. We did our decade recap on consumer tech, uh, I think a week or two ago, with uh, Dan Klein for the Friday Tech Show, and we were talking about all these major categories. We're talking about smartphones. We're talking about all these smart home products, and we were saying, you know, VR is one of those spaces where we felt like it was going to take off, especially with that acquisition that Facebook made, buying uh, Oculus mm-hmm. a couple years ago. And um, on the consumer side, you're 100% right. It, it hasn't. I think yeah. the, the combination of the price point, um, the limited use cases, and the specialty hardware that you need with some of the computers has made it a little tougher. I think the commercial side is probably going to see a lot of that stuff. Yeah. I mean, you see some pretty cool headsets coming out. Microsoft has the HoloLens, too, which, fingers crossed, we should be getting one of those here eventually so we can all <laughs> fiddle around and test it out. Um, but, but you know, we were talking about Apple earlier and, and Lamentum and, and how they're incorporating this technology into these phones now. And so, you look at something like Pokemon Go, which was just, I mean, a success by virtually every metric. And that was, I think, one of the first points in time where you could see how this technology just incorporated into your phone. It was easy to use because you weren't having to put your phone into some headset and put the headset on. You can actually just look at your phone and see the world through a different set of eyes. Um, and, and, you know, retail companies, whether it's Home Depot or Wayfair, they're figuring out ways to actually put those products in your room so you can uh, make a decision right there on the spot whether it's something you want to buy or not. And in a lot of cases, they are converting more sales with that technology. So, a lot of different applications. And um, just to, to me, it's going to be really exciting to watch it develop over the next 10 yeah. years. It's always fascinating to me to see groups of pokey people standing around <laughs> <on> the corner <laughs> <laughs> interacting. People that you know would never get together, but they're here. For this one moment, yep. this one Pokemon, but but yeah, Jason, I totally agree. I mean, on the healthcare front, you're talking about companies like Intuitive Surgical, mm-hmm. who are utilizing AR, VR, just within the robotic tools that they use and how Even they're training doctors. So it's it's incredible. Johnson and Johnson too. I yes. mean, a company that probably most people would think it's just some dumb blue chip. What do they have anything to do with tech? They're making those big investments too. It's just really you got to dig a little bit to learn about it. But you, healthcare to me is probably the most exciting market where this For technology sure. uh, is playing out because when you watch demonstrations of what these physicians are doing with these headsets, I mean they're performing surgeries before they ever have to perform the surgery. The success rate is so high now because they have it all mapped out before they ever, you know, make make one incision or the technology is helping blind people see it's helping deaf people hear the life life changing uh, implications there it's just uh, fascinating to see so Jason brought us life changing implications. <laughs> Emily, this is not framing up what I had to say very well. At how all. are you going to follow that one up? <laughs> well, Dylan, I have a cat, <laughs> and I'm also going out of town next week. So uh, 
I am one of the many people that is playing into the trend that is pet humanization, and I am getting myself a cat sitter. So, <laughs> yes, this is a low point for me, but it is a big trend that we have seen over the past 10 years, and I think we're going to continue to see over the next 10 years. That is people treating their pets like members of the family, and that's not to say that they ever weren't members of the family. That's how much into this trend I am. I am upset at myself forever implying <laughs> that my cat was not a member of the family, but people are willing to spend a lot of money on their pets, uh, willing to take care of their pets as if they are humans. And I see that trend playing out really strongly for a lot of different businesses. It's one of those markets that has historically proven to be recession-proof as well. So even when times are hard, I am still paying that person on Rover to come check in on my very needy cat. Uh, and yeah, that's a trend that yeah, it's not uh, life-changing. I'm not sure if it's going to make deaf people here again, but it is going to make my, ha- my cat pretty happy. See, I would say as the owner of three dogs, it's totally life-changing. Those dogs, <laughs> I mean, the unconditional love you get from a pet, there's a reason why you treat that pet like it's irreplaceable is because it is. Yeah. The data backs that up. Yep. Right? Pet ownership's generally good for you as it long is. as you're not allergic to the pet. <laughs> no, I, just, I just say get the pet and deal with the allergies. Eventually, you'll get over it. <laughs> All right. Switching over to the things that we think will go away. And this is going to piggyback a little bit on what Emily teed up in our last conversation. Um, I think that people are going to become much more aware of their data and their privacy. And so... You know, we've had this contract with this social contract with a lot of providers of content uh, and social media over the past 15 years where you give it to me for free. I don't really think about it too much, but I'm the product and you're serving me up to advertisers. Um, I think based on all the blowback over the last five to 10 years, um, we're going to be rethinking that contract a little bit. And I think we're going to be pushing more and more on some of those platforms to be more transparent. We're starting to see that already. Um, And I wouldn't be surprised to see someone kind of step in and make more efforts to say, you know, we're not we're not monetizing your content and maybe using that as a competitive advantage out there in the marketplace. No thoughts on that one. All right, we're heading over to Nick. <laughs> Nick, what do you think's going away, man? Um, yeah, so my trend that I think is going to go away is food delivery. Um, I think it's it's one of those things where they just don't make any money. That's that's the, that's the basics of the business is that it's 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 all the worst things about ride sharing with the low profits of the restaurant industry combined together. Um, we saw earlier this year uh, with their most recent earnings report, Grubhub come out and basically say we don't know I mean that was the, the gist of just uh, just of management's uh, comments uh, they described the customer being more promiscuous uh, than they than they expected and which that kind of describes my experience with these food delivery apps which whichever one's giving me free delivery at time X is the one that I'm gonna get usually order from whichever one has promotion going on so I think uh, after after years and years and years of, of struggling to make profits in a very competitive industry with low margins you know basically everywhere, uh, that the business touches. I think over the long term, uh, it's going to go away. I'm not saying that you won't have access to food delivery, but I think the costs that these businesses will have to charge uh, will just make the total addressable market of this sector much, much, much smaller than it is today. So I'm curious with a market like that, it's it's something where consumers clearly like it. You know, they like not having to go out to pick up stuff from the takeout spot or or maybe even a place that doesn't normally do takeout, but it's decided to start doing it because they don't have to do it themselves. Uh, what what happens in a market like that? You know, we have we have so many businesses now where it's undeniably great for the consumer. I think Spotify is an example of that, right? Losing a ton of money, but people love paying a flat fee and accessing any song they want. People love being able to ride hail with Uber and Lyft. 
I'm not really sure what the future looks like for these markets where people clearly enjoy it, but we haven't really figured out how to make those businesses profitable. That's a good question. I think for for Spotify, you know, I can see the path to it. it makes much more sense, right? You own this, you own this, uh, the licenses to the music, and you can see how you know. I have one license, and I can sell to 10 million people off of, off, of, off of that license over time. But when you look at uh, food delivery or rideshare, at the end of the day, you need a person in there driving that vehicle. Um, you know, maybe uh, autonomous driving, you know, gets you there. Uh, you know, if you talk to experts in that in that field, it could be over a decade before we see that. Particularly, you know, the level five autonomous driving you would need, where I can go anywhere, no geofence, that sort of thing. Um, I just think that the economics, the core economics of the business, really make it difficult. Yeah, I I think that we will not have autonomous cars in our driveways by the end of next decade. I, I don't think you'll ever have an autonomous car in your driveway. I think I think when full autonomy takes over, it will be all fleet. It'll be all fleet. Yeah, that might make the numbers work for uh, delivery food. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Shannon, um, what is going away for you? All right, I think what is going away is this startup growth by any and literally all means possible mm-hmm. type of culture. Um, and we've talked a little bit about just startups in general, especially with a lot of these IPOs. But I think even more so the toxic startup culture that we've seen. A lot of these IPOs go through. I'm talking about Uber, Lyft, uh, WeWork, and even most recently, uh, Away, which uh, is private. But I mean, when you see story after story with management teams that you know are truly trying to grow the business, and I, I don't fault them for wanting to do any and everything to try to grow the business. But I think what's going to go away is overlooking the people side of it, right? And overlooking the culture that is required to sustain that growth over time. Um, I happened to, to read through the Away piece recently and was just kind of blown away at how normalized it was for people working at a company like this to, to be talked down to or talked to like that. Um, and so I, I just feel like there's enough scrutiny at this point, especially with what we've seen with WeWork. Um, that I think the toxic startup culture will ultimately go away. And it's not even the culture internally. I mean, it's something that affected users and competitors as well. I think Uber pretty famously did some pretty, if you're being charitable, gray hat things. I think a lot of people would call them black hat things as they were trying to understand uh, the ride-hailing marketplace and try to get legs up on their competitors. Uh, it doesn't bode well for them as a publicly traded yeah. company, um, especially when you know you have accusations of stealing IP or aqua hiring people that are bringing IP over with them, um, and your biggest, deepest pocketed competitor is the one that you stole from. I think yeah. That, yeah. that's going to create some problems for you. And I would even add to that. I think even as you look at kind of the regulatory side, you saw companies like Uber. Go ahead and move forward into markets where there was literally no sort of regulatory infrastructure and just say, you know what, we're going to do it and then we'll deal with this on the back half. I think that's going to change too. And granted, I don't fault them for doing that. There was a great book that I read that was talking about regulatory growth hacking and there's a way to do it in a system that makes sense. Um, but I think you're going to start to see regulators really start to step up even more to try to get ahead of some of these things moving forward. Yeah, it seems like a lot of businesses over the last decade have decided we're going to ask for forgiveness. Yes. We're not going to ask for permission. And I'd kind of like to see some more businesses ask for permission, especially yes. going back to what I was saying before about the data and the privacy side of things. <laughs> JMO, uh, what do you see going by the wayside? Um, I, I feel like we're already seeing this trend materializing, but stock splits to me just are becoming more and more Obsolete. I mean, they're more and more unnecessary. I think a lot of times uh, management teams 
Maybe they think a stock split is something that helps open them up to a new investor base if that share price has gotten a little bit too high. But I mean, clearly now we're seeing is commissions go to zero, and more and more brokerages are are going the way of fractional shares. They're opening up an entire world of investing for for new investors that that didn't exist before, and and I think you have. Your isolated incidents, where it's something like a Dow, which is a market, you know, price weighted index, and you have to maybe, uh, I mean, Apple, I think, split to be able to get onto the Dow, for example, right? Um, that that you maybe have one or two of those examples every once in a while, but I, I think you're just going to see less and less pressure for something like an Amazon or an Alphabet or a Booking.com to split their stock because now they really don't have to, and honestly. It just costs money. I mean, it can open you up to an investor base that might not have been able to afford that share before. But with fractional shares, you can afford those shares now, and just a little piece of it, and you can build those positions over time. So I just I think the case for splitting stocks is just becoming less compelling than ever. I'm with you so long as the places that offer fractional shares make it very clear how those fractional shares work. Yeah, I think yeah. there are probably going to be people who have access to fractional shares with their brokerage. And still look at Amazon and say, that's seventeen hundred dollars. How can yep. I buy that? That doesn't make any sense. And so I think the education part of um, those brokerage platforms is going to be really big for getting adoption there. Agreed. Yeah, to your point on stock splits, the, the funny thing I always think about, uh, you know, when now that there's fractional shares, is that everybody can say they own Berkshire A. And walk <laughs> <around>. <laughs> that used to really be something. Yeah. Hey. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Emily, uh, what's going away for you from the last 10 years? I got a lot of black for expressing this opinion on a market foolery. Uh, it was probably well-deserved. So, you know, when in doubt, double down. And that's <laughs> what I'm going to do now. I think gaming consoles are going away. You know, Google Stadia launch was, you know, not the best uh, received, to put it nicely. People were not happy with their attempt at cloud gaming. Um, and there were so many kinks that still need to be worked out. To be clear, I'm I'm still, honestly, I'm a little bit bullish on Stadia in general. Do I think that they're going to be without competition? No, I think Microsoft could definitely give them a run for their money. But when I look for 10 years from now, I think the decades of having, you know, five different gaming consoles in your house, and I already told you to buy the Switch earlier. I know <laughs> that. I still like it. But I think that moving forward, the future of gaming is going to be cloud-based gaming, where you're streaming from data centers. You don't have to download anything. You don't have to buy any physical hardware, at least not as it applies to an actual gaming console. You just download the game. You have a remote. You play with it on whatever device that you have that you want to. And I think that is idealistic right now, but 10 years is a long time. When you go back 10 years ago, you know, like we talked about in previous episodes, I mean, the world and technology was a completely different place. So there's no reason to think that 10 years from now we can't fix the issues like a little bit of lag. Yeah, I think going back to what we were talking about with VR and AR, the dynamics will probably be pretty similar. I, c- I can see that trend playing out exactly how you're talking about it. It likely starts with people who have performance computers already and are able to handle that kind of thing and then probably works its way down to the masses, maybe at some point in the next 10 years, maybe further out. Or not. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I mean, I think, and we were talking about this earlier before taping, Emily and I were about 5G. Mm. And, and I mean, I think the enemy of cloud gaming, of AR, of VR, it's latency, right? I mean, yes. it is that lag. And, and that will go away. Yeah. I mean, as 5G rolls out, I mean, they're already working on 6G, I'm telling you. And I mean, then it's going to be 7G, and we're going to get all the way up to 10G. Well, they're going to do what another. they did with the iPhone, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. they're, they're going to change the naming convention at some point. <laughs> that, that lag, <laughs> that latency will go away. And I think once you you can once you can provide a seamless 
experience, then I, I think that changes that changes the conversation in a meaningful way. And that's just going to take time. So it fits in really nicely with a decades-long prediction. Mm-hmm. I'm not giving you any flag for it. I, I appreciate that, Jason. <laughs> Tell the people on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, you just got to pass. I guess <laughs> market <laughs> foolery is a little harsher than we are. I think, I think, we're I, think I was ideas. a little more bullish on Stadia in that market foolery episode <laughs> than I was in this one. So I've learned my lesson. But I could see that being a really valuable value prop to, uh, to users, too. You know, yeah. to be able to tell people like yeah, it's so if, funny you say that because the pushback Stadia got was that it's fixing a problem that does not exist, and I was like, "What are you talking about?" I think the idea of having to buy consoles, physical consoles, to play games is a problem that exists today, and it might not exist for a lot of people because they haven't been in a world where they haven't need to do that before. I. I don't know. I well, you probably got a world full of gamers that don't even know they'd really enjoy it, and they're never going to try it because they don't want to go buy the console. But now if you can say, hey, try this, you don't need a console, well, maybe now I've discovered an interest that I didn't really know I had. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, I mean, people have talked about this with the new Microsoft, what is the Xbox One Series yeah. X that just came out, that it's basically not a console, right? It's just yeah. a hard, high-end gaming PC that we put the Xbox logo on there, right? And I, I think to your point... Um, I think there's always going to be among the super hardcore gamers because latency is so important. There's always going to be demand on the super high end for the latest and greatest hardware. Um, but for the for the average gamer, I, I think cloud gaming over the next ten years will be the way you access. Why would you buy a special piece of hardware if you're a regular everyday casual gamer if you can get access, you know, just through your browser? I feel so vindicated. <laughs> you should, Emily. As someone, as a parent who just paid nearly three hundred dollars for yep. a Nintendo Switch, yep. I welcome that. <laughs> and to to throw something that I don't think is going anywhere onto you saying consoles are going away. I mean, we've talked for five minutes about gaming. I have to throw esports in here at Ooh. some point, right? You know, this is a trend that over the last ten years has exploded. You look at the purses from some of the biggest esports competitions. They're incredible, and they're getting a lot of press. I have friends that have gone and watched esports uh, live, and it baffles me. i got to be honest. I don't get it. They love it. I think they look at it the same way that I look at going to an NFL game. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's clear that the audience is there. It's probably been there for a really long time, but now they're finally being recognized, and they're being given a platform to play and do all this stuff. So, I mean, you can kind of couple that right in with esports as well. It's a whole profession. Yeah. Which is amazing to me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just have scholarships. <laughs> well, and there's, you know, you talk about going to see an esports event. I mean, it's the, the things that are happening in game now are to the point you don't even have to leave your house. I think it was just this past week, there was the, the Star Wars event mm-hmm. in Fortnite where you had J.J. Abrams oh, yeah. in there literally doing an interview and they premiered a trailer literally in the game, um, which, you know, there's no reason that can't continue to continue to play out uh, over time. So somewhere there is an eight-year-old in the back seat <laughs> on his way to you know some relative's house saying, "See mom, see dad, I told you, <laughs> I'm going to become man. a professional gamer." <laughs> so sorry, parents everywhere, for just giving your children a uh, another point in that argument. Um, I think we're going to wrap up this part of our roundtable discussion. We've got one more segment coming, uh, and that'll come out tomorrow. But that'll do it for this one and this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or you want to reach out and say, hey, you can shoot us an email over at industryfocus at bull.com or tweet us at mfindustryfocus. And as always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for all his work behind the glass. For the entire IF team, I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening and Fool on. Fool on.